Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. We are here for uh, Susan Strait's new book. <laughs> oh my God, the letter response. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, she's standing right here. She's standing right here. <laughs> here it is, here it is. In the country of women. Um, yes, 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 yes. She'll be in conversation with uh, uh, Pat Morrison, and I just. I, I love introducing her because she's so amazing. Uh, she is an LA Times writer and a columnist with a share. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. She, you know, right now we're, we, we, want, we, want, we want to um, extol your praises right now. Uh, she is uh, an LA Times writer and columnist with a share of two Pulitzer Prizes. She has won six Emmys. Yes, six Emmys. And a dozen Golden Mike Awards for her work uh, hosting public TV and radio programs. And you're the voice of Kaiser, right? That, no. no, I thought it was like, oh, that sounds like Pat. Okay, sorry. Some, someone, oh, sorry. Alice and Jenny. Alice and Jenny. Her two nonfiction books, uh, Don't Stop the Presses, Truth, Justice, in the American Newspaper, and Rio LA, Tales from the LA River, which was an amazing book. Uh, both were bestsellers. Now, Susan Strait. Um, who's just remarkable? She's just really, really. We love her at Skylight because she's she comes and supports the store so much, and she brings cookies, <laughs> cookies, lots of cookies that she baked herself, herself. She baked it herself. Okay, none of this Trader Joe's stuff, you know, that she baked it herself. She has published eight novels, including High Wire Moon and A Million Nightingales. She has been a finalist for the National Book Award and received the Robert Kirsch Award for Lifetime Achievement from the LA Times Book Prizes, the O. Henry Prize, the Lannan Literary Award for Fiction, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. We're so happy to have her here, along with Pat. Please welcome Pat and Susan. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Of course, we're going to acknowledge how fabulous Susan is, but I want to point out that Janet Fitch is here. Janet Fitch, where is Janet Fitch? Woo! And we do want to take a minute, and you can talk about this too, acknowledge the death of Toni Morrison. It's such a profound influence on writers and on this country. Yeah, t today, today, waking up, and this is my book launch day, and... I actually had to take out three Toni Morrison references out of my book because my editor said, there are too many in here. Like, what is this? This is not an academic book about Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison's novel, Sula, as my daughters know, I read it every year. I read it over and over again. It's about two young girls. It's my favorite Toni Morrison book, Sula and Nell. And there are terms in there that literally how I raised my kids. Like, I got divorced, but she... Sula was like, I'm not living anybody else's life. I'm not having a secondhand lonely handed to me. And I thought, oh, I like that a lot. So I would comfort myself and think, well, I don't have a secondhand lonely. And my daughter who's in the audience, every time she would snap green beans, I would think of this line in Sula, Hannah, Hannah Peace is doing a playing a complicated instrument when she's snapping green beans. So um, it was strange to be driving here today with Delphine 
and hear about Toni Morrison. So I just wanted to say that is all. Well, I only do these things with Susan because she brings shortbread. I do. Actually, that's, that's not true. I would do it in any case because she's phenomenal. And two of her most profound literary influences are Joan Didion and James Baldwin. We'll talk a little bit about that. But I consider her, if, actually, if there were more desert in Riverside County, I would call her the Joan Didion of the desert. <laughs> and she's never heard me say that. But, but her work is as seminal about delivering us a California known and unknown as any work you will ever read. And when I read this book, I think the people who should be reading this book are the people who are within a 10-mile radius of here who go to Paris more often than they go to Riverside. But they can go to Paris, go, like Paris not just past Riverside. Not, not, <laughs> Anytime. The, not the hot air balloon Paris, <laughs> oh, but the man, other that's the Paris the I get Tower. to go to. I uh, <laughs> but, but this is a real California, too. This is a California we don't know, and the stories that we don't know about this California are the ones that she delivers. And you write them for your daughters, but you're also writing for us. Did you have us in mind as an audience when you wrote this? Well, now that's that's something I hadn't thought about. Of course, that's why I'm asking that's the why questions, ask. honey. Um, I I I have written lots of novels, and I love fiction. My colleague Michael Jaime is in the audience. Diana Wagman. There's a ton of fiction writers here. Fiction is completely different, and I was always scared to write a memoir because I thought I would blow it. And you know, it's not that you can't blow it in fiction, but it's different. And I thought of all the essays I'd written about being a single mom, about race, about raising mixed-race kids, I thought there was a way I knew how to do it 10 years ago and 15 years ago. And then I didn't write it because I thought it would be too simple. And then all of a sudden, stuff got hard, right? And this is a completely different book than it would have been had I published those essays that you remember about doing my girl's hair. And now look at what hair is. Now suddenly, Delphine is at my house last night and it's 1045 and we need to put gas in the car so we can get here. And I'm like, no, uh-uh, you, you, can't, you can't go. And not because she's a woman, but because she has all this beautiful hair and I don't want some stranger to drive by and say something. That's not, that's not what I thought we'd be doing right now. So it's a different book, but I, I still really, oh, Rosette's here too now. Sorry, Rosette, like rolling her eyes hey, at me. Hey, where's Rosette? Rosette and Dolphina right there. Woo, that was a big girls. eye roll. <laughs> I wrote it for them, but I really wrote it for my mother-in-law. I mean, I have to be honest. I wrote it because I missed my mother-in-law so much, and she died when I was three months pregnant with Rosette, and she was the woman who taught me how to be a certain kind of woman who didn't just cook for your family, but she said you cook for the stranger who's going to stop by. So I think I still, I wasn't thinking of anyone at that point but her. You open with a, a prologue entitled Homerica, and there is something Homeric because women's journeys are not about distance, they're about depth. Yeah. And as I was reading this, I was thinking of that. My, they never talk, tell us about the odysseys of women. They never say about the woman her passage was worthy of Homer because our battles are hidden, our stories are so often hidden. You know, you think of the way, you look at the History Channel, which we call the Hitler Channel, uh, you know, and it's, it's all about fighting. It's all about war. It's never about the internality of life as it's lived. I, I know how women talk to each other. When, when we talk to each other, we say things that we, not that we won't say them around men. I'm not diminishing any man in here because there's a whole lot of men I really like in here. 
And I love everyone in my family. We were with 150 people on Saturday for Sims Family Reunion. I love all those men. But we talk to each other in different ways. And all those, those Homeric journey stories that I heard about the first woman, Fine, who you know was orphaned in 1872. She was born five years after the Civil War ended. She did everything by herself from the time she was six years old. No one ever talks about that, but yet I was given Tom Sawyer, I was given Huck Finn, and that's fine. But I really thought about this because Rosette was a classics major at USC, and we're reading, we're rereading all of these things, all these myths, and I thought, wait a minute, Homer's got all these soldiers on the boat, and then they all get picked off by all those, remember, Scylla and Cher, and then he just goes and gets new ones. If a woman was on the boat and those were the kids, they'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, Scylla, whatever your name is, you're not Served taking us. these. Yeah. I'm not going to get new kids. Like, I will kill you. And I thought, that's what the women in my family did, is they left by themselves, and they fled by themselves, but they had kids with them. So they weren't by themselves. They had no army. They were the army, and they did the laundry, and they kept people alive. And when they got here to Southern California, this was the promised land. And now I look at how also we're being told California should fall off the edge of the continent. I'm like, that's so cute. We're getting all your food with us. <laughs> like, also Facebook. So just, I mean, if you want us to fall into the ocean, great. But none of that's true. All the women I grew up with immigrated from Mexico, Guatemala, Switzerland, France, but internal migration. Oklahoma. Internal migration from Sunflower County, Mississippi, meant the same thing in the stories women were telling me. And yet, why do we think our stories aren't worthy? There's a point in the book where you go to the library in Riverside, the public library, you want to check out 22 books. Your mom says, no, I'll let you check out 10. <laughs> but these are other people's stories. Whose stories are they? And why have our stories always been considered less worthy? I did find great stories, though, at the library. I just told Jennifer, I read Julie of the Wolves. You know, I read um, Island of the Blue Dolphins, but I also Heidi, read Sula. Heidi, Swiss girl, like your mom. Well, I read Anne of Green Gables, and I read Heidi. I, I actually, the other book I ended up talking about is A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Do you remember the mom in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn when the pervert, like, tries to get the daughter, and she shoots him, and, like, she shoots where she's looking? It's not good for him. Um, I was just like, <laughs> I want my mom to be like that. But no, my mom would be like, go out and play. And we'd be like, what if someone chases us? She's like, run. And we were like, what if we get thirsty? And she's like, that's why you have spit. And we're like, but what if we run out? And then she said, people have hoses outside. And then she'd like lock the door. <laughs> that was, that's, come on, you guys know that. That's what parents did back then. But I still wanted to say that that mom is who I wanted to be for my kids. Like, do not mess with my kids. And those were great books, Pat. But you know what? I always remember what Ernest J. Gaines said, my, one of my other favorite writers, Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. I teach that every year. He said, I went to the library and I didn't see my people on the shelves, and that is why I wrote about Louisiana, and I didn't see Riverside on the shelves. So. But, but there's another invisible part of California, the people of California. You can look to Steinbeck and the Grapes of Wrath, right. but it's, it's working class Californians, the Californians who are not Hollywood, who are not you know, the Mulhollands, the, the builders like that. And these are the people whose lives you describe and their, their sense of continuity and of, of um, how they depend upon themselves generation to generation to regenerate the sense of we can do it. That comes through so profoundly in this book. Maybe, maybe the other thing that was hardest about writing it was that I really did start out by saying 
something I would tell my kids all the time. I live a mile from where I was born. You know, how many of you guys live, like, within a mile of from where you were born? Yeah, see, I'm just saying. I mean, Michael Lewis is pretty close. Michael's got Elmani on lockdown, okay? Like, that's, <laughs> that's a thing. But I'm saying that I felt bad about that because I wanted to be a famous writer. I went to graduate school. I studied with James Baldwin. I was already married. We came home directly after that, and someone asked me today, for a radio show, like, but why did you come home? And I said, because we were poor. And, like, we didn't have anything. The car broke down, and so we came home to Riverside because what else would we do? We had people that would take care of us. And my husband at the time, I was 23, and he was 24 when I graduated. There we were in Riverside, and Kaiser Steel closed down. And suddenly, you know, six people in his family were out of work because everybody worked at Kaiser, and everything started going away. And there was an ad in the Riverside newspaper for a security guard, and it said white only. It was 1983. And I wrote a piece about that for the, for the, Herald exam, uh, the, the Los Angeles Examiner. And I thought, okay, how could we leave? Like, it's just hard enough for us to survive. And we lived in a one-room apartment. We both got jobs. He was a custodian, and I taught ESL at Inland Empire Job Corps. I never thought I could leave. And then when I started the book, I thought, but why would I leave? Like, this is where I'm from. And people are like, but how can you still live on that crazy block where your neighbors are crazy? I'm like, maybe I'm crazy too. And they're like, oh. <laughs> and, and yet you and Dwayne did make one big diaspora. You went to Amherst yeah. when you were studying there. And James Baldwin was your mentor. Talk a little bit about that and how that gave you not only confidence in your sense as a writer, but a confidence in your own story as something valuable. Sometimes I still can't believe I was that lucky. You know, I, I, got in, I, I never took a creative writing class at USC until I was a senior, and then I was supposed to take a class with T.C. Boyle. And you guys can laugh all you want, but my aunt was married to a Hell's Angel from Fontana. And I saw T.C. Boyle in the hallway. Lori knows this. She's my college roommate. And I was like, I'm not taking a class with that. He looked like a Hell's Angel. And Lori's like, yeah. He's too skinny to be he, a Hell's Angel. Well, I just mean, you know, he could have been using speed. I didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> he dressed like a Hell's Angel, and he was a fabulous teacher. And I was afraid of him. And I didn't take a class I'm with him. I'm still afraid of him. Don't tell no, him No, he called me into his office when I was a senior. And he said, why did you never take my class? And I was like. Schedule didn't work. <laughs> and he said, why are you not going to graduate school? And I didn't even know this man. And he said, you have to go to graduate school for fiction. And he told me the five programs. And one of them was Iowa. And I got into Iowa. I didn't understand the point of Iowa. And I was already going to get married. And Dwayne said, there's no black people in Iowa, and they don't have any good sports teams. We can't go there. And I was like, oh, you're right. And he said, we have to go to Amherst, because then we'll be close to Boston Garden, and we can see the Lakers. And I was like, OK. That's literally why we went. What serendipity. And then when we got there, when I got there my second year and I'm married, here's James Baldwin. And he loved talking to Dwayne because Dwayne didn't care at all about James Baldwin. He'd be like, yo, man, how's the weather in France? Are you going to eat that brownie? <laughs> and that, so he would stand by Dwayne. And, and he was so kind to me because he knew I was completely out of my element. And I was taking classes with people, and I had to have a helicopter in the story. The hel somebody would be in a bed, and the beam of the helicopter would wake them up. And my classmates would be like, what do you live in Saigon? There's no helicopter. Like, why would there be helicopters? I'm like, there just are. And they're like, but that's not even true. And I'm like, but, but it is. And they're like, 
You have to at least ground your fiction in reality, okay? I don't even know what you're doing. Why does this kid have a gun? And I'm like, because he does. And that, then James Baldwin was like, this is amazing. You should write more about where you're from. And that, that changed me. And the, one of the biggest things I wrote about in the book, sorry, am I boring you? No. no. I can't see you at all. She always does this. I can't see well anymore. Come on, you're doing okay. I can see her. That's it. He told me secondary characters is who, is who makes our stories. And he was right. It's the secondary characters in our world that carry the plot forward, whether we're in a great movie or whether we're in a great novel. And I would never have thought that way. And he said, no. So he said very gently, he just said, no, in this story, I want you to pay attention to Leonard. And I was like, Leonard, man, he's in the story for like five minutes. And he was somebody I worked with at the LA Times, customer service. You, that's who you called if you didn't get your paper. It was Hi, not, thank you for calling the LA Times. Yeah, it was not Up fun. Up yours. It was not fun. But he was right. It took me a long time to understand that secondary characters carry our lives forward too, not just yeah. our novels, and that was big. And, and you see that in the density of the women who populate the book, not just your mother-in-law, but everybody in that family. So you take yeah. your story back generations and who these women were. So talk a little bit about Alberta and her family and how you, your family was so sketchy and your mom who locked you out, like, go play, I'm locking the door. <laughs> that was completely the opposite of what you found in Dwayne's family and the stories that they told about themselves. It's, it's because my mom had it so hard and my, my father, my biological father, his dad, he was crazy and he ended up killing my grandmother. My grandmother fled with my father when my father was seven, and they fled to Echo Park. They lived on Lemoyne Street because the aunts and the grandmother were acolytes of Amy Semple McPherson. So my dad was seven, eight, nine years old, and he saw Amy Semple McPherson flying across the stage on a wire from the top of Angela's Temple, and he hated church because he said it was all fake. So my dad hated everything because he'd had this terrible, you know, he'd say to me like, well, we didn't have indoor water, and I'd be like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do about that. Like, I like having water. And he'd be like, we didn't have electricity. And I'd be like, I'm sorry. <laughs> but he couldn't tell me about his past, and my mom wouldn't tell me either. They both were like, it's none of your business or we don't remember. And then I show up at Alberta's house when I'm 15, 16 years old, and she sits in the chair and just tells me everything, these epic Homeric stories. Her mother, Daisy Carter, was five years old and walking with her mother, Mary Bell Ford, who was very beautiful, down a dirt road in Sunflower County, Mississippi. And Daisy's five, and her mother sees a speeding car coming toward them and a plume of dust and throws the five-year-old up on the road bank, and then the car plows into her at full speed. And the two young white men who were driving the car had clearly been sent to kill her or were drunk and killed her, and they drove off. And so she tells me, I'll never forget, she says, my mother, from that moment on, never had a home. She went from pillar to post, from pillar to post. And the way that that image is in your mind, you know, I'm 16 years old, I tried to imagine what that, and she was a great storyteller, but she would never tell, for example, after she passed away, my father-in-law came to our house one day, and he said, you know, she told you more than she ever told me. And that's because they didn't sit in that kind of space. He was out in the driveway drinking beer and they were telling their stories and the women were inside by the fire. And that meant, that meant something, you know, that women would tell those stories only to each other. And they were epic stories, you're right. So Daisy, 
was alone at five years old. Fine, after emancipation, was alone at six years old. How did they even survive? Well, they survived, I think, this that thing that they say about resilience. I know that's a word that gets overused, but it's true, isn't it? There's this tensile strength. So Daisy had four daughters. She came to California, and she never told anyone who their fathers were. Like that whole... Any of the four, that's right. None of the four. And Aunt Myrtle, who was really this beautiful, absolutely elegant woman, she used to cry and say, just tell me who he is. And her mother would never tell her. She was 40, and she was trying to find out who he was. Her mother wouldn't tell it's, her. It's rare, that kind of mystery and guardedness, because the other women in your book are so open right. with other women about Daisy was famous, and you can't... So when people say, oh, well, what are your kids? You know, what, what's their ethnic background? What race are they? It's a mystery. <laughs> like, I mean, and you could do... We joke about this. In the book, I say, like, we could do DNA tests. What would it mean? Daisy's, Daisy's life was a mystery because she wanted it to be a mystery. I think I'm going to respect that, you know? So. When you were growing up and you were dating Dwayne, there were stories about when you would go to Venice Beach and how you were treated as an interracial couple. And you think, that sounds so long ago, but so current. You know, it, it isn't an antique story. It's a, mm. it's a real story. And even then today, I think it was Delphine who was in a car with a bunch of friends and you guys were driving with her and you saw, here comes the CHP after her because, as Dwayne said, a bunch of black kids in a car. Oh, yeah, that was Gayla driving and oh, these Gayla, guys sorry. were in the car. It was terrifying. And I did write about those things and I wrote about those things 10 years ago. It's just it's a different climate now, isn't it? But everyone in this room knows, like, we've all got those stories. But the tenor... The tenor of hearing them is different now. I mean, it's pretty scary. It is, it's always been scary. It's just, I don't know. What do you guys think? I think it's a different scary now. But it was always, Dwayne is, my, my ex-husband is six foot four and weighs 310 pounds. I'm five foot four and I go about 110. And when we were together in Venice, we, we were roller skating because that's what you did back then. You know, we rented the skates. And we you fell had down. striped socks. Right? Yeah. And Cute Jim stories. Brown came by and tried to get my number, and Dwayne was like, that's Jim Brown. And I'm like, that's creepy. So I remember that. I remember we had our friend Penguin with us, and he was really 5'8", weighed 200 pounds, and he was a football player. And then that's what I wrote about, is that that was after my freshman year of college, and my college roommate, Lori, is here. We've been, we were roommates through four years of college. That was after freshman year, and they wanted to see Westwood. And Westwood was a whole different story. And we got pulled over. We were walking. And there was a police shotgun, like, in his ear, in his ear. His hat was on the ground because he was real pissed about the hat hair. He had a big natural. He was mad about the hat hair. They threw the hat off, and they put a gun here and um, said he fit the description. And, like, those words fit the description are things we'd heard all our lives. I had to write about that because people act like that either didn't happen or it only started happening now. And, I mean, it happened all the time. It happened to his brothers before him, and, yeah. It was scary to write. That one was scary to write. Why is there this isolation of men's stories and women's stories? Why don't we talk across that barrier to each other? I don't know. I, I, I will put my girls on the spot only a little bit by saying that I never show them my stuff. I never give them my fiction. I never say, here, read this, because it's dark. My fiction is super dark, and I get that. And I'm writing it, you know why we write. We, we write because we write. As Toni Morrison said, we write, 
we write because words are our job. Like those that, but I had to give them the memoir, of course. And both of you guys were just like, why didn't you tell us these things that happened to you? Or like, we didn't know these things and we don't tell our children certain things and we don't tell men certain things, not because we don't love them. I'm choking up a little bit, but we tell our girls, man. We tell our girls because they're going to just be like, I know, like that was bad. And I remember when this happened, we don't, like maybe our kids think they want to make us feel better about it. And maybe the men think they should fix it, which in my family means I'm going to kill him. And like, I don't want everybody going out and killing stuff, killing people. But we tell our girls, right, because we just wanted to tell somebody. And once we told somebody, then we're cool. That's how I think it is. I just realized that, that in, in the human genome, the genetic line that endures is the matrilineal one. Yep. And if you want to trace your family back, you do it through the female line. And you can always find those traces. And that kind of is reflected in what you're talking about, about the stories of continuity. I'm not, as I said, in any way diminishing the fine men who are here. I mean, Michael, Alex, you, you know, we're like this, right? It's just, that is, I'm just being honest. Don't you guys think so? Like, it's just the way we talk to each other. And it is really hard sometimes to tell your husband what happened to you before he came along. And it is really hard to tell your father maybe something that happened to you that he doesn't really want to know. And I think... That's, that is, I think you're right. The matrilineal line, for me, what's fascinating about thinking about those women that came before me is how hard it was to find them, especially the indigenous women or especially fine. Fine, like the, to me, the heroine of the book, I didn't find her real name until the very end of the book. It was a long time because she had five different names because if you were a poor black woman, every 10 years there was a census she was called Fine, Viney, Fan, Finey, Vinny, Tinny. Yeah, and so I'm looking up, trying to find her. And also, she's a woman. So what happens to her last name? It changes every time. It took forever for me to find her real name. And that was, that was actually like toward the very end of the book. It was like 3 o'clock in the morning. And I'm on Ancestry, just trying to find something. And I spell her last name differently. There's only one record where she says the name of her parents, and she spells it C-A-T-H-E-R-A-N, Catherine. And I put K, Catherine, E-L-Y, and up pops an 1870 census document from McMinnville, Tennessee, which is way out in the middle of nowhere. And she is a one-year-old baby, and her name is Safina. And like her picture in this book, the only picture that exists of her, she's grown. She was a baby and she lived with her siblings, and she never saw them again, ever. She never saw a single one of her family members again after her mom died. She was given away. You wrote this for your girls, but how did it change you? It brought up all that stuff that we didn't talk about, you know. Now I've just finished writing an essay called Unsubstantiated, which is about all those stories that women tell each other, and that then people are like, well, what were you wearing? And why did you go to that party? And what did you have to drink? And why were you wearing perfume? And you're like, I'm sorry, what? That sounds like a detective, not a... That, that is what they say to you when you say something happened. You know? Yeah. I'd say, well, this thing happened to me at a party, and I had not ever written about it, and it was bad. And then I remember telling someone, and they're like, well, why were you even at the party? And I'm like, it was like 150 people at the party. Why wouldn't I be at the party? It was New Year's. I mean, and it, well, why were you wearing that? A white sweater from Contempo? that had a drawstring at the bottom, and now it's covered with blood? I don't know, because I just bought it, and I liked it. 
those are the things that people would say to you when you said, this person attacked me. But why, why were you in the living room? Because that's where people were dancing. How many bedrooms were there in the house? Are we supposed to ask that when we come to the house party? Is this party? a Kavanaugh hearing? Yeah, just, that's what it felt place. like. That's why I wrote it. That's why I wrote the essay. Because I felt as if I should say to my girls, next time you go to a party, as you walk in, ask how many bedrooms there are, what the comforters look like, how many bathrooms there are, was there a front door and a back door, how many people were in attendance, what alcohol was served, just in case you need to know for later. Like, come on. Oh, my God. So I wrote that essay, and I haven't done anything with it. I want you to read this passage that I've marked with my purple marker. This one? Yeah. (laughs) You want me to read about Barbie? I like this. Oh my goodness. I got so much trouble for giving you girls Barbies, didn't I? All right. So at this point, Dwayne's working at Juvenile Hall. So he's coming home and People like, he's like, yo, I got this 12-year-old guy and he shot somebody in the face today. And I'm like, why? And he's like, he doesn't know. And then he'd go to bed because he worked graveyard. My husband's life was like Narnia, I know. He went through the wardrobe door to the world where at midnight he'd be processing young men who were increasingly violent. He asked one boy why he shot a woman in the face and the kid shrugged and said, I don't know. He had teenage drug dealers, gang members, and boys who'd been abandoned their entire lives. He broke up fights and stayed awake, and then he came home at dawn to sleep for an hour before his daughters woke up. He returned through our front door to a house of girls, the opposite world. Little girls, stuffed animals, and Barbie high heels were everywhere. I was told by some white women who meant well, I can't believe you let your daughters play with Barbie dolls. My daughter will never have something so brainless and cliched. And I replied, all the other dolls are white or pink, and Barbie's the only doll that comes in different races. This is actually Teresa, Kyra, and Skipper. Teresa had brown skin. Kyra was meant to be Asian, I believe, but she looked multiracial, and I had kept my old Skipper from childhood because she was skinny, flat-chested, dismissible, hopeful, and yearning. She was me. Thanks, thanks, Pat. <laughs> that's, that's great. I didn't write it. I just picked it. <laughs> I love Skipper, man. I still have Skipper. Gayla let the Doberman at daycare ate my Barbie when Gayla took it there. Skipper was me. I did not believe those other mothers deserved this last information. We washed and braided and styled a lot of Barbie hair. My girls always took the right leg off the Ken dolls, which also came in various races. All of the men were right legless. Eventually, my girls told me it was because they wanted Kira and Teresa to drive the pink Barbie limousine that someone had given us. Gayla and Delphine figured Ken was much better powerless. (laughs) That is a great passage, so... You, you also say that your wedding portrait is like an ad for required diversity. African-American, Japanese-American, Irish, German-American, Oklahoma-American, Swiss. Um, and, and yet we think that this is what America is supposed to be, and yet we still have to explain it. Even in California, we have to explain it. But we don't explain it in Riverside. Because that's people are like, well, that's how you guys roll out there. And we're like... Yeah, it is, kind of. I mean, once I started teaching and I started thinking about this, and a lot of my students are here and they know, I teach a class called War and Love in Fiction. And like everybody who went to war 
in Riverside, came back at March Air Force Base, Norton Air Force Base, and George Air Force Base. You know, we grew up in these, and then Camp Pendleton. But people came back, and their wife, their, their wives were English, Japanese, Korean. So, I mean, I grew up with people like Georgie Smith. His mom was Japanese, born in Kyoto, and his dad was a black guy from Texas. And Georgie Smith, you know, he was 5'8", and he could dunk. And he was vicious. And then Richard Box, his mom was from Germany and his dad was black. And my neighbor Ed Lachika, his mom was Japanese and his dad was Filipino. And they fought over ghosts. Like they had different kinds of ghosts in the house. The Japanese ghosts and the Filipino ghosts. And they would throw down. It was super loud. And that was the military. So we never had to explain it because then we all married each other. So my girls played on the basketball team. Delphine's friends, Ambrosia was Filipino-Hawaiian. Diana, Bu Diana Bunch was Mexican and Irish. Everybody was everything. And Riverside would show up, and people would be like, what are you guys? And we'd be like, winners? <laughs> I mean, like, you know, the Torrance teammate Spamasabi, remember? And, like, our coach was Samoan. It, we just, but then when we went out into the world, this is what we knew. We go out into the world, and it wasn't like that. So we were confused as to why everyone didn't marry each other. Your girls are living a very different life from the people they grew up from. They're all, they've all gone to university. Uh, was it Delphine who said, I want to be a casting director when mm -hmm. I grow there up? There she is. Rosette yeah. works for Amazon. She does casting stuff. So when they read this, is this like an entire world apart for them? Ladies? I know you were putting your mom on the spot <laughs> to answer for you, but. I don't know. I mean, they still come home. Like, Delphine was at family reunion. And cousin Snooter was like, Delphine, I'm Snooter. And then did he talk to you for like an hour? And he has a scrap business. And so he gave you his card. And it said, Snooter, the scrap man. So you don't have any scrap. But if you do, your cousin Snooter, who's in we'll my first book, deal. Darnell. I mean, we're still at home, you know. And we're at home all the time. And I have to tell you this. And I have not said this to anyone. I just realized why I am wrong about the men in one way. Because I tell the girls all the time. I have a port, front porch. I've been in the same house 30 years. All the men come and sit on my front porch and very tenderly, because they love me, offer to save me when Armageddon happens. This is a new thing. Aww. Like, it's not... It, Delphine has seen it now. She actually took pictures of it one day. And these are like white guys my neighbor who's Creek and Cherokee and Cheyenne, Mexican-American guys, black, it doesn't matter. They're all like the guys of my childhood and they sit on the porch and they're like, all right, I know you're not going to take a gun. And I'm like, I do, I'm not going to take your gun. So I'm just saying, when the stuff happens, I'm going to come get you first and then we're going to go to Casablanca and we're going to get my mom and my grandma. And I'm like, okay. So I would not turn down that offer. I don't turn it down from anyone. And then Dwayne comes over and he's like, I know you don't want a gun, but I'm just saying. So when this happens, and I'm like, okay. And that is, that is what the men, they, they do care very tenderly for all of us. Like they're ready to, to do that. So that's, the, that's a great thing. And so the girls do know that. And now they do know. And now everybody they do. else knows. So we know where to go when it comes down. So, so let's take some questions from you for Susan. Um, we must have some out there. Hello? You guys are just appalled. <laughs> yeah. I'll repeat the question because we're doing a podcast too. Well, I've had the pleasure of reading it 
history that you were not able to get into? Oh, good question. Mm -hmm. So it's gorgeous, it's in depth. What part of your family history were you not able to dig into? Because that becomes a big part of the book too, in a way. It was, it was. And, and my mom really wouldn't tell me anything when I was younger. She would literally say, I don't remember. And she had her reasons for saying that. And now all of a sudden that she, she turned 80 and she tells Delphine, Rosette, Gayla, and me all these long, long stories. And it's fascinating. So I know more than I knew before, but she still tells us new crazy stuff like every weekend, right, Delphine? And we'll be just be like, why didn't you tell us this before? And she'll be like, why would I? And you're just like, I don't know. So I don't, I know that my mom and my biological father, there are big gaps, but the only, the thing I could never find out was the identity of the fathers of the four daughters. No one would talk about it. No one would ever do it. And of course I had to leave some things out because they were too, too dark. And, and, and there was that, but that's the, the biggest corner I'd say is, is really like my mom and my real, my, my biological father. Those are still corners I don't know enough about. I know my grandmother died um, before I was born and my grandfather was said to have killed her and that she left Echo Park over and over and went back to him in the highest mountains of the Rockies and that's where she died. I don't Somebody know. else? Come on. That's scary. Oh. <laughs> um, people are very much into their ancestry now, ancestry.com as you mentioned and telling family stories. Um, but it's hard sometimes. What's the art to getting people to talk about those stories? See, that's the sad thing. This face, <laughs> as my children know, they're like, I'm not going to Target with you, Mom. No, because look at Rosette's face right now. She's like, we came in here for some lotion, and then Mom saw this person, and it's been two hours. And so no one will go even to the grocery store with me because, like, people come up on the porch, and I'll be like, so what's up? And they'll be like, well, you know, did you know I was a boxer when I was 13? And then like, I could show you how to kill a man like right now. And I'm like, I did not know that. And that's my friend, Louis, the pest control guy. And then it's like two hours later and he's told me everything. So that's why he didn't show up at my house. He was at your house. He was at my house. Okay. And, and like, I, I can't say, but I know that you guys are like, but you're talking a lot. I am talking a lot here because it's my job tonight. But when people are telling me those stories, I, I am a good listener, and I usually say, but how did that feel? And I learned that from having my kids, because you know they come would come home and be like, mom, mom, on the playground, and you know, you're like peeling the potatoes, right? And you're like, uh-huh, and they're like, on the playground, and you're like, uh-huh. So on the playground, and you're like, uh-huh, and it comes out, but you just have to wait, and then you have to say, well, what did you say when he did that to you? Well, and then I did this, and I'm like, well, dang, how did that feel? That's how I learned it. You just keep asking the questions. And that is and a good thing. And listening to the answers. That's a good thing. You just have to say, well, what did you feel? And how did you, or like, how'd you get out of that? Or like, when did he open the door? And once it was locked, like what happened? And that's, that's all. Have some of you tried to talk to your relatives and found it difficult? Maybe Susan can give you some advice about no, how to No, no, that never works out. with any of my Send relatives. Her just to with strangers. <laughs> just with strangers. Yes.
Right. Well, so what is the process of taking oral histories, which are especially important in the African-American community because of the slave history, turning those into written histories, the process? Right. And, and do you do like kind of any fact-checking the way you would say with, um, if you were writing an essay and saying, well, okay, where did you get that sweater? Back to the questions that right. are often put to people. That's just what happened when I was looking up Fine, Safina. So this is pretty obscure, but I think it's fascinating and it's a great question. In Mississippi, you might have a really large plantation, but everyone's name and age would be written down. Louisiana, the French and Spanish were the best at writing everyone's name, their age, often their country of origin, also in South Carolina. Tennessee was the worst because the plantations were very small and everyone distrusted the government. So it would just say 280 slaves. And it wouldn't even say men, women, no one had any names. So I'm up here trying to find Catherine and Henry and Catherine's sister and I can find nothing in Murfreesboro or anywhere else. The thing I found from 1870 is McMinnville, so it's five years after emancipation and they are living with their five children in a, a a place just outside McMinnville, still could never find any records because, as I found out, Tennessee people are like, this is none of your business how many people I have and what their names are. So you're absolutely right. All we have sometimes is the oral storytelling. But remember when Roots came out? Remember the point of the griot in Roots? If you're too young to remember Roots, just, I know I'm old, but like Roots came out when we were in high school. That's all anyone talked about at North John W. North High in the day. And it was about the griot was the storyteller. And we used to say that in high school. We'd be like, yeah, so-and-so, he's the family storyteller. My brother-in-law, General, is the family storyteller. But my brother-in-law, Derek, who is the youngest, has an encyclopedic memory. Derek knows every single person's name, their birth dates, what address they lived at, everything. He used to be a firefighter. We have no idea why he knows all this, but we'll always be like, we'll call Derek. And they'll be like, oh yeah, man, they lived at 4155 Michael Street. And, and he's my age. We're both 58. And it's crazy because Delphine sat with Uncle Derek and you wouldn't think like, no, go ask Uncle Derek. He knows. That's, that's what I think, Luna, the, the point for me was to write down the history of Daisy. That's Daisy's stories were never written down and no one ever talked about them. It meant a lot to me. Do I think I did it right? I have no idea. I only say in the beginning, I, I had to think about this a lot. For a memoir, how do you fact check it, right? I said that like we have our five senses and I think memory is like our seventh sense. I think memory is that thing that everyone's got a different memory about their childhood and people argue about that, but it's still like your memory, so it's your sense of smell or taste. And that's all I could do was write it down the way it was told to me. And the other great storyteller in our family was Karen Larkin. I mean, Karen Lark. She grew up in South Central. She grew up at 22nd and Central. And then she lived in Carson. And she passed away two months ago. And she was the other great historian. Yeah. Um, she was 70. And um, so the book is dedicated to her. She told me all the stories about the Cali and Fine side because they were raised partly by their grandmother. Another question? Uh huh. Okay. Question about meeting James Baldwin and that relationship. Right. So, and James Baldwin had come to Amherst as a visiting writer in residence. And so he was required to do uh, like two major public lectures, one each semester. And then he taught a special workshop. 
And so they chose like two students from each of the five colleges. So there were um, two people from our graduate program. Susan Laurie Parks, the famous playwright, she was also in that class. And there was a woman named Alex, Alexa Birdsong. We had a good time. We listened to Shaka Khan in the parking lot afterwards. There's just us women, I, the, the guys, they went away. They were, um, I mean, it was just we. But James Baldwin in class was very quiet. And yet, you know, he didn't do line-by-line -line editing. I had a great professor named Jane Nugelborn who taught me how to line-by-line -line edit, which is something I know that I've passed down to some of my students and that I really love doing it. But James Baldwin would get to the heart of that thing. Like I said, he would be really quiet and everybody would be showing off and doing their thing. I'd be terrified because I'm afraid someone would be like, why didn't you get a helicopter in your story? So I didn't say anything, which you guys are like, my kids are like, oh, really, Mom? I didn't. I didn't say anything at all because... The people were so mean to me, and plus they didn't like me being married to Dwayne. So I had two professors who tried to flunk me, and they said, we saw you walking on campus with a tall black man, and I'm like, me and my husband? And they're like, this isn't Santa Barbara. And I'm like, I'm not from Santa Barbara. So I, too, agree. This, this clearly is not Santa Barbara, a place I've never been. And then he gave me uh, an F. So that was super fun. James Baldwin, on the other hand, would be really quiet, and then he would say, but what about when the rocking horse shows up? And you'd be like, what? And then you'd be like, oh, that's what it was like, is he could see right to the heart of something. And then he gave his big public lecture, and Dwayne and I were in the audience. Oh, we had such a good time. That's when the movie version of Go Tell It on the Mountain came out. And Giancarlo Esposito, he was like 18. That was fun. He came to the screening. It was super fun. Um, Glenn Turman was in it, too. In his talk, Dwayne and I are sitting there. We're 20. 23 and 22, and James Baldwin said, nobody was white until they arrived in America, which is something he has said many times, but he said it to us, and we were like, wait, what? And he said, yes, people were Greek or Irish or Lithuanian or Italian or Spanish, and then when they arrived, suddenly they did not want to be black, so they were white. And Dwayne looked at me, and he was like, what? And I was like, what? And th that was a huge deal for us because we didn't have anybody come talk to us like that in, in Riverside. Uh, Muhammad Ali came to our high school and he told us not to use drugs. <laughs> he literally made us wait two hours and it was outside in the, on the track and field and then he showed up and he said, don't do drugs, don't do drugs because that, there was a reason he told us that. But James Baldwin spoke in a large crowd and made everyone in the room, no matter what race they were, understand things in a way that I don't think anyone else could. Hopefully that helps. So you, you need to know that she made the lasagna for her own wedding reception, and she made the shortbread for today. So I'm sorry, but wait. Before Lori Matsuno and I carved out watermelon boats until 3 o'clock in the morning, true. and then I got married at the Afri African Methodist Episcopal Church, Allen Chapel, and it was 108, and she was there, and we made all the food. It was her. All right. So you both did shortbread today from her own hands, so... Stick around, thank her for her book and for the shortbread. <laughs> Thanks for coming. And thank you, Pat. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.